From the JAMA Network, this is the JAMA Medical News Podcast. Discussing timely topics in clinical medicine, biomedical sciences, public health, and health policy featured in the medical news section of JAMA. I'm Jennifer Abbasi for JAMA Medical News. Years ago, Dr. Martha Twaddle cared for a patient with pulmonary fibrosis. Over the more than four years between diagnosis and death, as the patient transitioned from office-based visits to home care to hospice, Dr. Twaddle, an internist and palliative care specialist, oversaw supportive care for this person. During the entire duration of the illness, the patient didn't visit the emergency room and wasn't hospitalized. Dr. Twaddle's team's coordination and communication, some of the basic tenets of caring for people with serious illness, helped keep those all too common occurrences at bay. Today, Dr. Twaddle is the Medical Director for Palliative Medicine and Supportive Care at Northwestern Medicine Lake Forest Hospital outside of Chicago. She says her patient's story beautifully demonstrates how palliative care can prevent suffering and improve quality of life. She wants more seriously ill patients and their caregivers to have access to this kind of person-centric, team-based approach that she's used for more than three decades. Too few patients, she says, get the day-to-day support they need to live as well as possible through serious or terminal illness, especially outside of hospitals and hospice care. For that to change, more healthcare organizations and clinicians should embrace palliative care principles and practices, according to the newest guidelines, developed by the National Consensus Project for Quality Palliative Care, which is comprised of 16 national organizations. The practice guidelines are published by the National Coalition for Hospice and Palliative Care and endorsed by more than 80 groups. The guidelines have been around since 2004, but the newest iteration, which Dr. Twaddle co-chaired, broadens the focus from palliative care specialists to all clinicians who see seriously ill patients. I recently chatted with Dr. Twaddle about what quality palliative care looks like and how more physicians can implement it. What is palliative care and what does it encompass? So how is it different from the traditional concept of medical treatment that many physicians may be more familiar with? Yes, palliative care is team-based care that focuses on supporting those with serious illness and their families from the time of diagnosis through the trajectory of that serious illness, addressing the holistic needs of that person and family. So very much looking at them in the context of all they are and what matters most to them to figure out a treatment plan. I think that the one thing we have to very much keep in mind with palliative care is that it is an integrated specialty. So it's not another swim lane, so to speak. It is, I liken another visual for patients and families is I will say medical care is often swim lanes. We're each in our role, we're each in our lane, we do our job, we write in your notes, in your chart. Whereas Palliative care is synchronized swimming. The person and family are in the center, and the care helps to enhance communication, collaboration, and coordination. Palliative care specialists are particularly expert in symptom management, communication skills, facilitating complex transitions of care across settings. But I wouldn't say we aren't paying attention to the primary treatments because we are so 
engaged and collaborative with the treating team. Okay. So is it really a different way of looking at patient care? It sounds to me like it's broader and it looks at the whole patient and their needs. I would say it is a more holistic way of looking at the person and family in the context of serious illness okay. versus a disease-based model. Okay. How can physicians know if a patient needs palliative support? Any person who has serious illness should be screened for unmet needs, symptom issues, practical aspects of care, social issues, psychological issues, understanding, again, the cultural milieu. So any person with a serious illness should be screened. So could you define what seriously ill means? So we use Amy Kelly's definition of serious illness, which is in the guidelines, which speaks about a a diagnosis or condition that significantly increases the mortality risk for a patient as well as the morbidity, and also has functional impairment and may or may not stress their caregiver. So a serious illness is one with a higher risk of mortality and morbidity with functional impact and also caregiving impact. That doesn't say anything about prognosis. I think that's very important to recognize that people can be seriously ill, and although they carry a high risk of mortality during that serious illness, they may recover. And good palliative support may be a key part of their recovery. Okay. Can you give us some examples of a a variety of patient situations where they're seriously ill? Seriously ill, absolutely. So probably where we see the most robust integration of palliative care has been in oncology. So people who have a serious diagnosis, advanced cancer, who are undergoing treatment, palliative care will be engaged for symptom management, helping to uh, navigate that time in their lives with the hope that many will respond well, go into remission, might even recover. I also see patients who have progressive neurologic conditions like multiple sclerosis, Parkinson's disease. Palliative care has a tremendous role in caring for people with dementia. Uh, And that relationship, intermittent um, perhaps at its early stages, might go on for years. Can you give us some examples of uh, where palliative care can take place? Um, What type of different settings and what does that look like? Can you give us some examples? Palliative care has opportunity to serve patients and families in every setting of healthcare. So within the hospital, which is a common place for palliative specialty teams to provide support, they're often engaged alongside other treatment teams, and they're helping with sorting through the goals of care, helping patients and families truly find their voice and express their needs as to what they hope for, what they're expecting and understanding what is happening to them, and often called in to help with symptom management. Palliative care specialists are the experts at symptom management, and those symptoms might be vast. 
And the interdisciplinary team nature addresses symptoms not just in the physical domain. So the psychological aspects of suffering, spiritual aspects of suffering, would also be embraced, assessed, addressed by the palliative team. In the office setting, which is the growing area of palliative care, we're seeing palliative specialists see patients alongside, again, other treating specialists. So they may be seeing the patient alongside the oncologist or in tandem with the oncologist, with a pulmonary physician, with a heart failure physician, again, helping with symptom management, but also helping with big picture management, some of the practical aspects of living with serious illness. One of my favorite areas of palliative care is in the home setting. So people whose illness is either such that they are now experiencing functional impairment because of their their illness and its impact on them, perhaps their treatments and the sequela of their treatments, that care would be best delivered in the home. And that, too, is interdisciplinary. That's where you really often get to know a person more deeply because you see them in their setting, again, helping with symptoms and oftentimes addressing the practical aspects of care. So palliative care isn't about a setting. It's really ideally following a patient in all settings of care. And the more we see programs being able to develop that type of capacity of seeing people wherever they are, the better the care outcomes can be. What's the difference between palliative care and hospice? So hospice is a form of palliative care. It's a a defined type of palliative care for people in the very end stages of illness. So by definition, in order to access hospice care, which is supported by discrete insurance benefits in our country, one has to be terminally ill. And the definition of terminal illness is a prognosis of six months or less if the illness follows its typical course. And usually when people enter hospice care, disease-directed treatments, they aren't helping much anymore. They aren't seeing responses to perhaps chemotherapy or some of the immunotherapies. And so they have decided to forego those treatments that target the disease and focus entirely on symptom management, treatments that enhance their life and quality of life versus trying to fight the illness any further. So the new guidelines emphasize that all clinicians who see seriously ill patients should integrate palliative care principles and practices into their routine assessment and care. So why is this message important now? Every one of us who practices medicine whether we are a physician or an advanced practice professional, are going to care for people with serious illness. And it doesn't necessarily require accessing a palliative care specialist. The idea that we, even at its inception, held as important was that this should be core competencies for those who care for patients and those who care for the seriously ill. So the guidelines very much stress that all of us, just like any physician needs to know what the heart failure guidelines are, the treatment of hypertension or the management of diabetes, every practicing physician needs to understand and needs to incorporate these guidelines into their care plans for the seriously ill. 
It's not just for the specialists. We'll use specialists as we need, but this is so important to the care of the seriously ill. All of us need to be engaged in this type of care. So we have a tsunami of aging in our in our world. It's amazing to me, and it's actually quite fascinating to see multiple generations in the office, sometimes all at the same time, or to facilitate family meetings with three or four generations present. It's just an amazing time in our history. But the aging population also brings with it an accumulation of illness. And so those needs for the those with serious illness and aging represent a population. In addition to people who are undergoing treatments for serious illness, such as malignancies, heart failure, pulmonary disease, they might be quite young. If we waited to address symptom management or goals of care conversations by only accessing specialty support to facilitate that care, we would do our patients a great disservice. Okay. One thing I found interesting is that the guidelines also promote support for family caregivers. So what does that mean for physicians? So one of the things that we have um, recognized increasingly is that the internal medicine model of the encounter with the patient all by themselves really doesn't make any sense, particularly when someone is seriously ill. The, a serious illness does not just affect the person who is ill. It affects the family system in which they live. And we need to really incorporate the pediatric model into our way of providing care. So person and family-centered care is what the pediatricians have done forever. And looking at how they do it and using that model in our care approach is extremely important and very effective for people who are seriously ill. So we encourage patients not to come alone to appointments, but to bring, ideally, the person who has assumed a lot of the responsibility in their care. And in the process of those dual visits, or sometimes more than dual, we have an opportunity to ask and observe how people are functioning in the caregiver role. Being a caregiver is a very dangerous occupation. There are increasing studies that demonstrate the impact that caregiving has on the caregiver's health, that those caregivers who provide care for even small amounts of time each week who are under stress in that role actually increase their risk of mortality. So from a preventative health standpoint, it's imperative that we assess that caregiver and understand how they're doing, what they might need in order to provide care, and also how much capacity do they really have to be a caregiver? What's their understanding of illness? What's their proficiency with medications and some of the technologies that we send home? All those things are so important to assess. So these guidelines make it a requirement that obviously we are hoping that these guidelines are adopted and written into standards and help influence policy and payment, and that part of good care for seriously ill patients is to assess the caregiver's capacity and their level of stress in their role. 
What are some other key messages in the new guidelines? It's very important that seriously ill patients are well supported across transitions of care. We know that people with serious illness, and particularly those with multiple morbidity, multiple complex illnesses, are very vulnerable when they move from the, let's say, an inpatient hospitalization to a skilled nursing facility, and then from a skilled nursing facility to the home. We know that at those points of transition, care plans can deteriorate, and communication can become interrupted. Medications might get restarted that had been discontinued or might not be refilled, even though we've asked them to be so. So these guidelines speak to very much the importance of transitions of care and making sure that there is communication, collaboration, enhanced uh, facilitation of that care for seriously ill people, warm handoffs. Ideally, the ideal is, as Mary Naylor demonstrated in her work in Pennsylvania, is seeing people in another setting of care by one of the care team members. So, for example, one of the APPs from the hospital, then seeing the patient in the next setting can do worlds to enhance their symptom management, carry forth complex discussions, and decrease the likelihood that they will bounce back to the hospital because the transition did not go smoothly. What is a warm handoff? A warm handoff is actually talking to someone about the patient because there are, of course, notes and voluminous notes that go with patients as they move across settings of care. Unfortunately, many of our electronic medical records do not speak to one another, but those notes, et cetera, are often printed into voluminous discharge summaries. Does anyone actually read them or understand them? And a warm handoff provides not just the information, but observation and nuance. And what I enjoy about warm handoffs is in essence, entrusting the next professional with the care of my patient by talking about who they are, what I've learned about them and their family, and providing that context to that next professional. So that warm handoff is, is an active collaboration, questions asked, opportunity to connect, and it builds that vital network of care that extends across settings and ensures better outcomes for these very fragile people and their families. The guidelines also go deeper and wider in regards to social aspects of care and cultural aspects of care. I think we have all learned more about our own biases that we have as we approach people. Sometimes we're not obviously even aware of what our biases might be but being curious, asking questions, understanding how a person and their family define family. Family is what the patient says that it is. Understanding how people prefer to make healthcare decisions, how much information is helpful. Those aspects of assessment, screening are very important and put forth in these guidelines so that we understand 
the context of this person and their family more completely. And that then helps facilitate the care. Tell us more about the palliative care interdisciplinary team. So who's on that team and how do they work together? The interdisciplinary team is vital to the delivery of palliative care. So I use the analogy, again, I've spoken of swim lanes, and that's a multidisciplinary team. When people have a role and they are in their area of expertise and they stay in their role, but they communicate, an interdisciplinary team means that there is some role blurring. So an analogy or a visual of the interdisciplinary team is often the hand. We each have a role, but together we're much more effective, and each one of us, irrespective of our specialty, should be able to screen for needs in an area outside of our specialty. So an example of that would be that I, as a physician, can screen for social needs and can screen for spiritual distress. And then I would ask my spiritual care provider or my social worker to become engaged in the care team and and assess that patient and family more deeply. And typically, interdisciplinary teams need formal meetings to put their thoughts and observations together and discuss them and figure out how they are best going to serve that person and family. And those are called interdisciplinary team meetings. Now, who's on the team? There's a core group that is usually part of an interdisciplinary team, the physician, an advanced practice professional, social worker, and spiritual care. However, we often see other members join this team in a very organic way based on the needs of the patient. So if nutritional needs are significant, if we're dealing with cachexia, if we're dealing with a stroke patient and severe dysphagia, the nutritionist may be part of our team. Pharmacy is increasingly a part of interdisciplinary teams, which I love because their input on choosing medication, delivery of medication, medication management, de-prescribing, not just prescribing, can be very helpful to organize the care. So the core group is almost always present. And then based on the needs of the patient and family, there are more ad hoc or more dynamic additions to the team. The secret, though, is it's a team. Interdisciplinary care is the very definition of palliative care. So this call for action might feel overwhelming for physicians. So how can they begin to incorporate palliative care into their practices, and what resources exist to support them? I do think for a physician just looking at the guidelines, they would say, wow, how how in heaven's name am I going to do this? And again, in that definition, interdisciplinary care. So creating an interdisciplinary team is what we must do. I think these guidelines also point to the future that we physicians can't be just about the person right in front of us, but we need to also think more and more about the systems of care delivery within whatever setting in which we work. 
So let's say we work within an office. We need to create an opportunity to assess who is seriously ill in our practice and what do they need and how then with others in my practice could I talk with them about what other resources can we access in the community, part of the health system that we're attached to, to better the care of our seriously ill. So this can be done. These, though these guidelines look daunting, it is very much attainable to create a team. It's going to require a new way of thinking, thinking about systems of care versus just encounters of care. What I also really enjoy in these guidelines are there are 45 practice examples that come from real life of groups that said, I, I see a need, I want to figure out a way to, to address that need, and they creatively created team. So hopefully not just the guidelines will inspire, but the practice examples will help facilitate some creative ways to reach solutions for every type of practicing physician. So resources that could be helpful for physicians who are seeking to increase their scope of practice through implementing, integrating these palliative care guidelines, a simple way to start would be our summary article that appeared in Journal of Palliative Medicine, gives an overview of the guidelines. And I also encourage physicians to link with their professional societies within their community and certainly with their health system because more than 90% of hospitals have palliative care within their hospital. They have inpatient palliative care. So there may be an opportunity for these physicians to find resources within the hospital that could help facilitate the care of their seriously ill patients outside the hospital. This is really about collaboration, cooperation, communication, and making team and identifying resources. And we can solve these problems better when we get with other folks and ask each other, how could we best meet the needs of our seriously ill patients in our community? So how can providing palliative care change a medical practice? Tell us about the difference this support can make in a seriously ill patient's life and what that can mean for physicians. I've practiced now for over 30 years, and I started in palliative care back when it wasn't even called palliative care in this country. Certainly within the AIDS epidemic, there was a great need for this holistic person-centered approach, interdisciplinary approach to patient care. And so over these 30 years, I have seen amazing outcomes be born through a person and family-centered interdisciplinary approach. I truly believe that this approach means that people live well and oftentimes I think live better and longer in active treatment because their symptoms are well addressed, the practical aspects of care are supported, and their caregivers, the people that they love and worry about, are also receiving support. So it is deeply satisfying to see our seriously ill people do well despite serious illness, achieve quality of life, symptom management, be at peace 
despite the ravages of illness and see their families also thrive because for many primary care physicians, they're not just taking care of the patient. They're also often the doctor for the family members. So this approach really helps a physician facilitate the best possible outcome for their patient and family. And by creating a team to help care for the seriously ill, it helps to ease the burden as we watch some of our patients enter the end of life. In over 30 years, I've had, I've lost count of the hundreds and hundreds of patients that I've cared for who have died. But the hallmark is that death, when it comes, can be gentle. Our little motto at Northwestern is live well and land softly. We care for people across that whole spectrum. All of our patients are going to die. So we want every aspect of their care to be the best possible care experience for them and for those who love and care for them. So this very much gives the tools and facilitates this type of care and I think empowers physicians to deliver that type of care. That's it for this episode of JAMA Medical News. To listen to more podcasts and subscribe, go to jamanetworkaudio.com. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode was audio produced by Daniel Morrow. I'm Jennifer Abbasi, Senior Staff Writer for JAMA Medical News. Thanks for listening.